everybody. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Lights Out Podcast. I'm your host, Josh. As always, I've got my brother and producer, Joel, here with me in the studio. And today, man, oh man, do we have an insane story for you. We're going to be covering the case of Catherine Knight. We haven't actually covered like a female killer before, and I feel like they're kind of hard to find for whatever reason. There's not that many like well-known female serial killers out there. Obviously, there's a few, but this is a, a truly, truly bizarre and insane story from down under in Australia, which I'm really excited about. Uh, this one is, yeah, definitely not one I would advise eating during because <laughs> it gets very, very disturbing and gross. It does. Especially towards the end. But before we go ahead and dive into Catherine Knight, I want to first thank our sponsors for today. We've got Warby Parker, Plush Care, and Shudder. Can't wait to tell you guys about that. Also, there still is some Lights Out merch out there if you're interested. It's at mileharmerch.com. Uh, we still got pretty much everything. So if you haven't checked out our merch yet, definitely take a look because you never know. There might be something that you'd like. We do have some grinders on there if you're uh, a 420 friendly out there. Uh, we have some really cool grinders uh, that are still in stock. But yeah, check out the merch. Also, if you guys want to support the show for free, one of the things you can do is go and subscribe to us on YouTube. Go to Apple Podcasts. Make sure you're subscribed there. And then make sure you're following us on Spotify as well. Those are kind of the three main platforms that we use, and it does really help us out if you're subscribed and followed. And also, we would appreciate if you did follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, we do post all of our show updates on there. We do. And our handle is at LightsOutCast. But enough of that. Let's go ahead and get into Catherine Knight. This is, a, like I said, an insane one. So Catherine Mary Knight. She was born on October 24th, 1955 half an hour after her twin sister was born named Joy. And they are from Aberdeen, Australia, which is about three hours north of Sydney uh, in New South Wales, Hunter Valley. So in the 1940s, their mother, Barbara, had been married to the local slaughterhouse manager, Jack Roan. And together they had four sons. Aberdeen is a very small rural town, as is most of Australia. I mean, it's a huge continent and i mean there's a few hubs cities there but for the most part there's a lot of small towns and farming communities in between aberdeen is known for its coal mining as well as it being cattle country and the slaughterhouse that's there has been the primary job creator there for over a hundred years but the town was no longer thriving and had fallen on some hard times the people there were very conservative and everyone knew everyone else's business as goes most small towns barbara started having an affair with a man named ken knight which was one of Jack's co-workers. She eventually left Jack, and this scandal rocked this small town. After leaving Jack, Barbara got married to Ken, and after they got married, they decided to move about four hours away to Maury. And she actually left her sons with Jack. Her two younger sons ended up being sent away to live with an aunt, and Jack kept the two older boys. It didn't take long for Barbara to have some more kids with Ken. She ended up having four more kids, which included Catherine and Joy. And in 1959, when Catherine was just four years old, Jack Roan died, and the two boys who stayed with her dad came to live with Barbara's new family. Ken was a very strict individual, a disciplinarian, with all of the kids. He was also a violent alcoholic who expected his orders to be obeyed at all times. But he was also quiet, even though he had a quick temper. And when he got drunk, unfortunately, he did beat his wife and his kids. Lots of abuse there. 
Barbara also had a quick temper, and so they would have extremely terrible fights in front of the kids. And when Barbara refused to have sex with Ken, Ken violently raped her up to 10 times per day. And it was never kept a secret from the kids, even though Ken later denies raping her. So think about how traumatic that must have been to be a child in this family. I mean, you're being openly exposed to not only sexual assault and abuse, but rape as well. And you know that your mom is being raped. I mean, I can't even imagine what that would be like. Because Barbara talked openly with her daughters about hating sex and hating men as well. Later, Catherine asked her mother for advice about what to do if a man wanted to do something sexually that she didn't want to do. And her mother's advice was to put up with it and stop complaining. Catherine was very, very close to her twin sister and her mother. She craved her mother's affection, even though she often beat her. Catherine had a quick temper just like her parents and went from happy to enraged in seconds. Later on in her life, Catherine claimed that she had been sexually abused by multiple family members until 11 years old. Although she never accused her father, these allegations have never been proven. And if it happened, her siblings didn't know about it. And honestly, I wouldn't doubt that she was you know, sexually abused. I mean, it seems like that was running rampant throughout the family. So she very well could have been. Despite there being all this abuse in the families, and this was kind of something that was common among many of the different families that lived out in these rural communities in this area, they knew other families that had abuse problems in it. But for Catherine's family, it wasn't always bad. You know, there was times that there was a lot of love in the house or so they say, and you know, but things could turn on a dime. That was the thing is that it was always tense. And even though there might be some happy times, it could literally turn violent at the drop of a dime. Catherine's personality was equally unpredictable. She could be very affectionate and loving. She adored her younger brother, Shane, and she often brought home hurt animals like birds, stray dogs, cats, and tried to nurse them back to health. They weren't allowed to have pets, so once they were better, she was forced to let them go. But when Catherine wasn't home, she was at school. And at school, she was known as the bully. She didn't hesitate to attack other kids. She'd punch them with her fists or just scream obscenities at them. And she got into a ton of fights. She also carried a knife in her boot. One time, some boys were across the street watching Catherine and her friends. And so she decided to walk right up to them and pull out her knife and threaten them. But when Catherine was calm, she was a model student who behaved very well. She was impossible to figure out. As she got older, she got more aggressive. She assaulted a male classmate with a weapon. And after attacking a teacher, She was injured in the struggle. It didn't come out until later that the teacher was acting in self-defense. As a young teen, she often scared her friends. She would explode in a rage, and they would be shocked and confused, and have no idea what made her so angry. One day, she got into an argument near the school with her sister, Joy, about who got to ride their bike home. The argument erupted suddenly into a fistfight, and the other kids were stunned. And these violent outbursts were just a part of her nature. But when she wasn't violently outbursting, she was also shy and just, you know, kind of kept to herself. She had a really hard time making friends. The way that Catherine coped with all the violence and abuse that she experienced at home was by disassociating in order to block out the trauma. She grew up with a constant fear of being raped, just like her mother. By the time she was 14 years old, she was a tall, fiery redhead with curly hair and glasses, and was mostly a loner. Other than her mom and sister, she was very close to her uncle, Oscar Knight. He was actually a champion horseman, 
and Catherine really admired him. But in 1969, he died by suicide, and this absolutely devastated her. And for years, even as an adult, she claimed that his ghost came to visit her. After his death, her family moved back to Aberdeen, where her parents had fled after their scandalous affair. Barely able to read or write, Catherine dropped out of school when she was just 15 years old. And then she got a job as a cutter at a clothing company. But ultimately, she really wanted to work at the slaughterhouse. Her grandfather and parents and brothers had all worked there, and she wanted to do the same, going into the the family biz. About a year later, this dream came true, and she started working at the slaughterhouse, cutting up the organs and entrails. She's a very hard worker and very good at her job. So she was quickly promoted to boning and was given her own set of butcher knives, which became her most prized possession. I don't see how people could even step foot in a slaughterhouse, though, because you know how disgusting it has to be in there? like Especially like back then. I'm sure it's a lot cleaner now. I mean, a lot of it's like automated with machines now, but back then, I mean, yeah, it was like pulling out the knives, just a person and, and the animal and you're doing that all day. Like, can you imagine just being covered in blood, like cutting open animals and stuff? How bad it would stink and yeah, doing that all day. That's crazy. It didn't take long for Catherine to really come to like her job. In one day, the slaughterhouse she worked at would kill 600 animals. And Catherine quickly became very fascinated with this whole slaughtering process as she would actually go and watch the animals be killed. And she would even, you know, when she was doing the cutting, she liked to cut the arteries on the animals and just watch them bleed. She, she became very fascinated with blood and just the whole gore of it and kind of obsessed with it, really. From what her coworkers have said about her and watching her at the slaughterhouse, she really enjoyed watching the animals die and hearing them scream and make noises and watching blood go everywhere. And this fascination in all of this really creeped out her coworkers. As you can probably imagine, most people at the slaughterhouse probably aren't like, oh, let's see what's going to happen. Oh, cut that neck. Right. And then, like watching blood spurt everywhere. <laughs> no, like, no. Everybody's just like doing their job. Like, oh, yeah. Trying to like get my money, out. get my paycheck. Yeah. And go home. Like, but she's like, oh, yeah. Kill that one. Like, she's just so cheering it. it on. Yeah. Jeez. During this time of her life, though, Catherine had just one boyfriend before meeting a man named David Collette in 1973, which would be her first future husband. Her relationship with David really set the precedence for you know, the pattern of her future relationships would follow. Her relationships with men were filled with violence, manipulation, and abuse. She loved sex and used it to control her partners. Loud fights, horrible insults, injuries, and frequent breakups were just business as usual when dating Catherine. Wow, sounds like a real fun time. David was most likely her first sexual partner, although we don't know for sure which seemed to be the main thing they had in common. And like her future partners, David was a heavy drinker. He was also smaller and shorter than Catherine, as she was a tall, strong woman who could chop wood right alongside any man. And she always went after men like David that she could physically dominate if she wanted to. David used to work for the railways at Coffs Harbor. His role was shunting or switching in the U.S., He switched the mechanism to guide trains or part of the train from one track to another. This was dangerous work, as there was always such a risk of being hit by a train that some railways even had ambulances on site at all times. 
And while on the job, David had seen his best friend killed in a shunting accident. In 1968, he was on duty when a train collided with a school bus that killed six children. He was a part of that rescue and recovering the bodies. But after he caused multiple derailments by falling asleep while shunting, I mean, what are you doing, dude? Like, that's like the most important job. Yeah. Lives are at risk. But after he was caught falling asleep a number of times, he was moved to Muzz Walbrook. But it wasn't long after that that he just lost the job altogether. So that's when he started working at the slaughterhouse. His heavy drinking was how he coped with living through so much trauma working on the railway. David was friends with Catherine's brother, and that's how they actually met and started dating. He also went out with her twin sister, Joy, and it's possible that they may have had a sexual relationship at the same time. And when they went out drinking at the pub, David would get into fistfights, and Catherine would actually join in. She's like, I got your back, boy. Let's go. Like, she's like that kind of woman, like just a dominating figure that was not scared to, to get physical with men, that's for sure. Right? She's ready to throw that one-two Mayweather over there. <laughs> Seriously, man. She's she definitely got your back. They ended up getting married in 1974, and apparently during the wedding, David was very drunk. And he actually rode on the back of Catherine's motorcycle to the wedding. And there's a picture of them. It's kind of a, and it kind of really, I think, explains the relationship. Like, David's a I short little dude, that. and she's like taller than he wow. is. And David's probably on the bike yeah. like this. I know. It's just kind of a, a funny thought to think yeah. Bar, or, uh, Catherine riding the motorcycle with like David hanging on to the back of her. Mm-hmm. An interesting thing to note, though, is that after these two got engaged, Catherine's mother actually told David, quote, you better watch this one. Or she'll fucking kill you. Stir her up the wrong way. Or do the wrong thing. And you're fucked. Don't ever think of playing up on her. Or cheating on her. She'll fucking kill you. And that came from her mother can too. You, can you like, imagine like. Would you still get married to. Hell no. A woman if her hell mother was no. like. Mother ain't Do lying. anything wrong. Slip up once and she'll fucking kill you. Yeah. Like, I'd be like note taken. I'm out. Like. But I don't know. It's so interesting that like, as we'll see that these men still, despite being warned, go through with staying with Catherine. Well, I heard a lot of Catherine's ex-partners all claimed she was really good at sex. Yeah. So that's yeah. probably what kept them all around. I guess. But is it worth risking your life for good <laughs> no. sex? Like, fuck. Get like, stabbed in your sleep no or something? No, thanks. Like, what happens if you fuck up or you can't perform or something, man? You, you're just dead? Yeah. Well, we'll see. <laughs> but Catherine had been told by her parents that having sex five times on your wedding night is what you're supposed to do. That's just like the normal thing to do. God dang. So she wanted to do the same, which Holy I'll shit. tell you from my own experience that <laughs> there's no way in hell I was going to go five rounds on my wedding <laughs> night. I'm lucky. To, honestly, like you're lucky to go one round on yeah. your wedding night. It's so exhausting like that whole day. Dude, for real. Oh my god! If if you got to the end of the night and your your wife's like, "All right, you ready to go five rounds?" <laughs> I don't even know. Uh, need something to wake me up, man. Yeah, yeah. And apparently, David <laughs> needed the same because he actually passed out <laughs> after having sex like two or three times, and this pissed Catherine off. And so he actually woke up to her on top of him, choking him. Holy shit. After on your wedding. Oh my what God. The what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, man. Wow. But to David's family, the couple seemed happy and madly in love, even though they were clearly very different from each other. 
David's sister, Sandy, actually lived with them for a few months and got to know Catherine quite a bit. Even though they got along, Sandy saw how quickly her mood changed. One minute, Catherine would be walking through the house, singing herself, you know, in a good mood. And then the next minute, she'd be screaming in a rage, I'm going to fucking kill you. (laughs) But to Sandy, Catherine was always lovely and charming. Because, I mean, looking at her, she does look like just a typical... Mm -hmm middle-aged woman i mean she looks very ordinary i mean there's nothing really like that creepy about her or i mean no i mean i've never met her i don't know what her energy's like but i'm sure you can sense it on her that she can you know pop off at any time yeah but from a physical perspective she she looks completely normal like just Mm -hmm. anyone you'd meet at the grocery store looks approachable like yeah like something you meet at like trader joe's or something (laughs) yeah but when Catherine got mad she seemed to gain superhuman strength Sandy thought she could pick up David and toss him across the room if she wanted to. But when Catherine liked someone, she was the nicest, sweetest, most helpful person in the world. She would do anything for the people she cared about. But if you fucking crossed her, that was it. You became the enemy. And literally the enemy. Yeah. A death threat. God, I can't imagine being in a relationship like that. Holy shit. Yeah, jeez. David actually told Sandy that when Catherine gets like that, you better just get out of the way because it could be a little too late if she decided to pick up a knife. And again, she loved her butcher's knives. Like she would keep that shit next to her bed. Like it was weird. She had a really weird obsession with these butcher's knives mm-hmm. that she used to cut up cows every day. Yeah. And she liked them so much. She actually ended up taking those butcher knives from the slaughterhouse and even took it back with her. Yeah. For her. Yeah. She's like carrying them around and stuff. Yeah. Like, back it's like her tools. best friend. Yeah. Best friend. <laughs> As you can probably imagine, Catherine and David's relationship was not very wholesome. They both cheated on each other multiple times and she cheated in retaliation for his affairs. But by the time she was 20 years old, she was pregnant. David was cheating and his mistress was also pregnant as well. Catherine ended up having their daughter, Melissa Ann, on May 11, 1976. Six weeks later, she tried to stab David with a broken beer bottle. So this was kind of the final straw for David. Then he packed up his things and moved in with his mistress in Queensland. Catherine was so mad that he had left her alone with her baby for another woman. And that July, she pushed baby Melissa down the street in a stroller and was jerking it wildly back and forth. And at one point it looked like she was going to shove the stroller with her own child in it into oncoming traffic. Eventually she was admitted to St. Elmo's hospital in Tamworth and diagnosed with postnatal depression. She was given antidepressants to help with the depression and she ended up staying there for a few weeks. But after being released, she took baby Melissa to the railroad tracks. The owner of the corner store watched as she placed the two-month-old on the railway line. The train was coming in a matter of minutes, and a local man happened to see her leave and rushed over to pick up the baby just before the train would have rolled over her. Wow, what a hero. And it's just so fucked up on Catherine's part, obviously. Like, what the fuck? Seriously. You know? It didn't end there, though. The shop owner watched as Catherine picked up an axe and started swinging it around her head, just like like she was mad, just out of control. As you can probably expect, she was arrested, and they took her ass back to the hospital. Clearly, she, she needs some help. But she signed herself out the next day. She then left Melissa at home and ran to a neighbor's house and pounded on the door. 
She told her neighbor that her baby was sick and she needed a ride to the hospital. Her neighbor agreed and put her kids in the car and drove to Catherine's house to pick up her and the baby. The woman's teenage daughter went into the house to help, but when they got inside, Catherine pulled out a butcher's knife and chased the girl out to the car, slashing her face. She then demanded the woman take her to David's mother's house as she planned to kill his mother to get his attention. The woman managed to convince her, though, that they needed to stop at a service station and that one of her sons had asthma, so they had to get out for a sec. But the boy got out in order to call the police, and by the time the police got there, Catherine was wildly swinging around the metal rod. Two policemen and a service station attendant pushed her back with brooms and got her to drop the rods. We're dealing with Australian police here. In America, your, your ass is probably getting shot in this case or tased. But they got their brooms out and managed to, <laughs> managed to coax her to put the rods down. After this, though, she was sent to Morissette Psychiatric Hospital, where she was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, which I was going to say, like, that's clearly sounds like what she has. The psychiatrist at the hospital, you know, diagnosed her with the borderline personality disorder, but they ultimately said there's nothing they could actually do for her as violence was in her nature. Catherine told the nurses she planned to kill the mechanic that fixed David's car and let him leave her. And then after that, she'd kill David and then his mother, Florence. When David heard about what had happened, he called Florence and they decided that they would get Catherine out and they would all stay together. What a great idea. Catherine was released into her mother-in-law's care and they went to pick up baby Melissa from Catherine's mother's house the very next day. This was only the second time that Florence had even met Catherine's mother, Barbara. And when she came out of the house, she started attacking David through the window. Florence was shocked and terrified as David just sat there with his hands on the steering wheel. Then Catherine came outside and punched her mom in the face. Because again, Barbara was attacking David in the car. And so Florence was like, what the hell's going on here? But she ultimately believed that Catherine, you know, was trying to save David's life, which I don't know. Maybe she just wanted to punch her mom. But I think she was at the same time like protecting David in a weird way. Right. But there could have been way better ways to handle that. I know, right? <laughs> it's just like physical violence is the answer every time, according to them. But once they were all back together, Catherine and David continued to fight. The insults and personal attacks were flying and their language was just absurd. After this, they fought, broke up and got back together multiple times over the next eight years. Catherine started to work at Dinmore Meatworks in Ipswich and David got a job as a truck driver. Around this time, she got really obsessed with her knives. She hung them over the bed and on the walls. And Florence asked her why they were hung like that. And Catherine said, in case I need them. Okay, that's scary. Like, ornaments would be one thing. I think I would be like, okay, you know. But in case you need them, you need all those knives. And like, these come knives on. are fucking huge, huge knives. Like, we're talking yeah. like super sharp carving knives for cutting, yeah. you know, big pieces of meat off of cattle like who nobody you know nobody's hanging their knives on the wall it's no. one thing to have like a you know medieval sword or something hung up right. on the wall for decoration but a bunch of butcher's knives that's very weird in october of 1976 david threw her an elaborate surprise party for Catherine's 21st birthday she was extremely thrilled by this and was so loving and affectionate toward him the entire night for once she was happy and charming and sociable all evening long for once, Catherine was happy and was being sociable and just enjoying her evening. On another occasion, while Sandy, David's sister, was staying with them, 
she heard one of the kids crying loudly in the bathroom. When she rushed in, she saw that Catherine was burning her daughter by holding her hand under hot tap water. Oh, that makes me so fucking mad. Like, who does that shit? That's evil shit. Yeah. That's just torture. I mean, you're torturing your child. And obviously this upset Sandy quite a bit, and she told David. And he made her promise not to say anything to Catherine because he warned her the same way that he was warned. He said, she'll kill you in your sleep and most likely kill me too. So they're just living in fear of Catherine. I mean, Catherine's yeah. running, running the show. Everybody's scared of her because they're worried she might kill them. But in 1979, David found Catherine in bed with another man. She begged him for forgiveness. And when he took her back, she convinced him that they should have another baby. It's a great way to improve your relationship right. have another baby why not and once she was pregnant again this only made her more violent you can only imagine those pregnancy hormones going took crazy. it to another level man yep. like damn david at this point was just terrified of her on march 6 1980 Catherine had their second daughter natasha marie when he was out at the pub he made it to the final round in a dart competition he was out later than expected, and when he got home, Catherine was livid. She did not like him to be late, ever. And so as punishment, she picked up a skillet, an iron skillet, and bashed him in the back of the head. Jesus Christ. Like, bashed him in the back of the head. I mean, imagine taking a metal skillet to the back of your dome. Like, right. That's going to break your skull. You kill somebody with yeah, that. Right. After being hit in the head, David took off and ran to a neighbor's house but eventually collapsed. And there was so much blood that the neighbor thought he would die before getting to the hospital. At the hospital, they determined that he had a severely fractured skull and he was in the hospital for over a week. And when he got home after being discharged from the hospital, he found out that while he was out at the pub that night playing darts, having a good time, just being a normal human being, Catherine was home putting all of his clothes and shoes into the bathtub and then lighting them on fire. What the fuck? So literally had no clothes except for the ones he was wearing that day left. But Catherine was back to being sweet and loving again. And she begged him not to press charges for bashing him over the head, nearly killing him for the sake of the children. And this should have been the end of Catherine. Uh I mean, this this should have put her away. I mean, this is like attempted murder with a deadly weapon. But she managed to convince David not to press any charges. Wow. Which... I don't know what the laws are, but I know like in this type of situation, like this is a domestic violence. And in most states, there's like zero tolerance for that. Mm-hmm. So like the state is fucking charging you with domestic violence. Right. So you're going to go to jail for that. But in Australia, apparently, apparently there's some leeway or at this period of time that David was able to just let her get off with this pretty much. And it shows how manipulative and how Catherine just can get her way with everything. Yeah, she's you a, know? yeah exactly. So every single time and it wasn't long before things got ugly again. She woke him up in the middle of the night, threatening to stab him. She said all truck drivers, you know, have girls and mistresses in other towns. And she knew that David had one, but he denied it, even though he probably did. I mean, they've cheated on each other multiple times. So it's most likely the case that he was, you know, sleeping around when he was out truck driving. And in 1985, he got home from work one day. And the house had been cleaned out. And Catherine was just gone. All that was left was an old couch. Catherine actually moved back in with her parents in Aberdeen. 
but soon after she rented a house in Muzzlebrook. Soon after that, she went back to work, and a year later, she injured her back while on the job and was able to get a disability pension. The government gave her housing commission residence in Aberdeen. A year later, in 1986, she met 38-year-old minor David Saunders. He was a hard worker and a big drinker, and just like her, he was very violent. After just a few months of dating, he moved in with her and her daughters, but he still kept his apartment. They had a very rocky relationship, broke up a ton, and when she threw him out, he would just go back to his apartment until she wanted him back again. And what's crazy is that the men that was with Catherine over the years never reported her violence to the police. And reason for not, you know, snitching on Kathleen is because, I mean, these are hardy countrymen. They don't want to admit that they're being, you know, abused by a woman. And, you know, they felt like that would bring them shame. So they would just take it. Not long after getting together with her second David, David Saunders, that she decided to have another child. And in June of 1988, they had a daughter together named Sarah. David then found them a house, and Catherine paid it off with her workers' compensation in 1989. Plus, her pension helped her, you know, pay the bills and live quite comfortably. And just when you think, you know, oh, maybe Catherine's going to be able to, you know, settle down and just be calm for a fucking day and live a normal life, one night, David came home late. She doesn't like it when you're late. So as punishment, you know, she was actually ironing some clothes. And when he came in and started walking towards her, she took a hot iron and fucking smacked him across the face. Oh, so much so that he literally had burn marks on his face for Holy weeks shit. from an iron. Damn. Oh, it hurts so bad. Like, and to top it off, she stabbed him in the stomach with some scissors. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's just insane. Yeah. She then grabbed him by the arm, swung him around, and tried to bash him repeatedly with the iron. Luckily, he was able to get out of the house and ended up staying with his mother for a few days. When a coworker picked him up for work, he was absolutely covered in marks and bruises yeah. and cuts. And David told him, it's bloody Kathy again. And that wasn't the only brutal moment that David experienced with Catherine. In fact, a year prior in May of 1987, he really tried to leave her for good. They had had a huge fight and she stormed off. And when he followed her, she went to the backyard where he kept his eight week old dingo pup. And she picked up the pup and slashed the puppy's throat with a butcher knife. It was a clean cut and David watched in horror as his poor little dingo puppy bled out and died. That's just, I mean, that's a savage as it gets i mean that's just yeah so sad no wonder he was scared i mean if he's if she's willing to slit his puppy's throat mm -hmm. that just shows you that she's capable of anything i mean she's capable of slipping his throat mm -hmm. so literally living in fear with this woman that i could die at any point in time it's just a matter of when Catherine then brought a shotgun to joy's house and told her that she had just killed david saunders Reason for doing this is Catherine liked to watch the shock on people's faces when she said things like this. And it almost was like she was doing like a trial run to see what it would feel like if she had actually killed David. She wanted to like kind of test it out and see what how people would react to her killing him. Picking up their energy, like feeding on their, their energy from that. Oh yeah, like. I mean clearly she's feeding off the fear that she's creating. I mean everybody's terrified of her. Everybody's worried that she could kill them at any point in time. 
So this was like, you know, really pumping her up yeah. for what's to come. Giving her a power trip. Oh, yeah. She's on a daily power trip. Mm-hmm. David Saunders tried to leave her a few more times after all this. He would often go stay with his friends for a few nights, but she always was able to coax him back. Once David left and he came back home, he found that she'd cut up all of his clothes. It's very interesting. I wonder why she did that. Maybe just in spite, I guess, but it's weird that she would like cut up his clothes. Like mm-hmm. it's, that's just kind of weird. Cause she burnt the last ones on fire. Yeah. So just cutting them up. Yeah. That's, I don't get that. It's weird. But after this happened, David decided to make an escape plan. He took a service leave from his job and told Catherine he was going to go visit a friend. But what he was really doing was fleeing and disappearing. Luckily, he was able to get a new job, and he never planned to come back. Obviously, Catherine figured out he's not coming back, and this made her furious. So she told their two-year-old daughter that David was dead, that her dad was dead. Wow. She then tried to find out where he had went, and she would often ask his friends and family, but no one would tell her where he went. David eventually came back a few months later, though, to see his daughter and found out that Catherine had gone to the police to tell them that she was afraid of him. The police issued an apprehended violence order against him. So basically like a restraining order. So not only does she take a restraining order out against David, which prevents him from coming near her or seeing his child. She was also on the lookout for a new guy when David was gone. And that's when she met John Chillingworth. And this relationship was just as violent and abusive as all the others. And within a few months, she was pregnant again. And in March 1990, she had a baby just 11 months after they met. And this was her first son, which they named him Eric. They were together for about three years before Catherine left John Chillingworth for the man she was cheating on him with. John Pricey. It's interesting how like she goes from David, David to John, John. Like, I wonder if there's any thinking behind that. Like, I wonder if that was deliberate or if it was just by coincidence. Cause it seems like, seems like it's some weird thing in her head. Like mm-hmm. I need a David and a David and then a John and a John. Like, what are the chances that somebody goes and has children too with two Davids and two Johns? Exactly. And it's interesting how she like makes sure they have, it's almost like she has children with them just to keep them tied to her. I was thinking that too. So she can control them. I think yeah. this is clearly all about control for her and power right. and domination that she can control these men. Mm-hmm. And they're like her little puppets, you know? Yeah. And she can keep them in constant fear. But then also like, I don't know what she was thinking, how she's going to raise mm-hmm. kids in that kind of environment. I mean, right. my God, absolutely well, insane. And it seems like all of her ex-husbands and you know current ones all have a good paying working job. Yeah, it's like she's knew that she would get money that yeah. way and she could she just sit back and not do shit. Yeah. Just get money from the government plus all four of these men now she mm-hmm. has children with. So obviously they got to help, you know, pay child support and stuff. So yeah, it's it's seems to me that this was all part of the plan for her. Absolutely. It's like I'm going to, you know, rule over these men mm-hmm. like it made her feel more powerful because all that free time just gave her all that time to like meditate on what does she want to do next like, yeah except i'm sure she was not meditating or pre-meditating yeah She's probably like interfacing with the devil on the, <laughs> on the daily like it's more like it true that but her. before we get into john pricey because this is where the story just takes a turn for the worse before we get into that i want to thank our sponsors for today 
Now back to the story. So Catherine and John Pricey met in October of 1993. At the time, they were both 38 years old and obviously had kids from previous relationships. And just like all the other men that she had been with, he also liked to drink. John worked at the mine. He liked big trucks, but he was also kind and well-mannered. He was your typical Australian countryman. He was also very charming, outgoing, and funny, and everyone that knew John loved him. He had tons of friends, and he spent a lot of time out drinking with his friends. He was a hard worker. No matter how late he was out or how much he drank the night before, he was always at work on time, and he was usually the first one there. At the time, two of Catherine's kids still lived with her. The other two were grown. John also had three kids, and he adored all of them. He had separated from his wife Colleen in 1988. His young daughter stayed with Colleen and the other two older kids stayed with him. By the time he met Catherine, one of his kids was married and another was soon to be married. And weirdly enough, he didn't get divorced from Colleen until several years after he started dating Catherine because she insisted on it. John and Colleen still got along very well and were very close. He always held on to hope that maybe one day they'd get back together. But when it came to Catherine and John's relationship, it was more of the same. Violent fights, then they'd break up, then they'd get back together, and so much of their relationship was based on sex, which is so weird, so gross, honestly. John's kids got along well with Catherine, and when they started having kids, they trusted her completely. All of Catherine's partners felt she was a good mom and never worried about her harming their children. But John's kids did start to know some odd behaviors with Catherine. One time they'd be driving down the road and, you know, a dog would run out in front of the car instead of, you know, trying to avoid the dog. Catherine would swerve in order to, to hit the dog. And when they would ask her, like, what are you doing that for? She would just be like, I don't like dogs. Weird, though, to like go out of your way to kill yeah, an animal like that. absolutely. Very concerning. And after a while, John's kid started to notice the bruises and scars on his body from where she beat and stabbed him. After a while, she was frustrated that he wouldn't marry her. He told her their relationship was more casual and just, you know, about sex as opposed to a serious commitment, which obviously infuriated her because she wants complete control. And truthfully, John didn't want Catherine to have a claim on any of his assets. Smart man. Him and Colleen had actually built their house and it was worth a lot. And he wanted everything that he had to go to his kids and Colleen. He knew if they were married, Catherine would fight for all of it. And she would. She'd take all that shit from him. So she moved into his house for a while in 1995, and even though they fought constantly, they seemed pretty happy with each other, or at least content with how their relationship was. Catherine kept insisting that they get married, and one night after a big argument, she stabbed him in the chest with a knife. Like, like what do you think you're doing? Like, you're, yeah. you're scaring people into marrying you, to being in a relationship with you. I mean, it's just, I don't, I don't understand this this mindset that Catherine has, like how does she think this is going to turn out and goes to that extreme of a measure immediately of, let me just stab you to like change. She your knows mind no other something. way to, she doesn't know actually what love is. I mean, that's mm-hmm. very clear. She doesn't know, you know, how to be in a proper relationship. Yeah. She's been conditioned to abuse in order to keep somebody around, mm-hmm. which is a, obviously a horrible way to be after being stabbed though. John ran to his friend's house bleeding and his friend told him that he had to leave her. She was dangerous, obviously, but John didn't want to leave, as he knew if he did, she'd do a lot worse. That same night, he went back home, and they just made up, had some makeup sex, and that was it. 
life went on. On other occasions, sometimes Catherine would take her anger out on the kids. One day, when one of his daughters came home, Catherine sat her down for a serious talk. Catherine told John's daughter that her mother had cheated on John and that John wasn't even her real father. How fucked up is that? Literally planting the seed that's telling her, telling John's kid that right. John's not your actual biological dad. Your dad is somewhere else and doesn't care about you when that's just not even true. And as a child, any anyone older than you at, on that certain extent, you're going to believe them. Right. You know? Right. So, so imagine how that fucked them up. Like, yeah. Probably really just confused all them. ways to manipulate and control. I mean, clearly she's doing this to sabotage, you mm-hmm. know, and control now plant fear into John's kids so that they will now listen to her. Right. Just so fucked up. And John at this point is just like trying to deal with the situation. He, he kept taking Catherine back because they had a great sex life somehow, some way. And he was just a kind hearted guy. I mean, he didn't want to, you know, cause trouble and stuff and he wanted to forgive even though he didn't want to commit to her. He still wanted Catherine in his life and she was everything to him. So remember, Catherine is living in John's house, the house that he built with Colleen. And Catherine, of course, is starting to try to take ownership of it. She started treating it like her own, and she felt like she was entitled to it. But after she found John's will and saw that she wasn't in it, she demanded he give her $10,000. When he refused, she decided to get revenge. John had taken a few things from work, old vacuum cleaners, and expired medical kit. They were things that would be thrown away. Catherine took a video of these stolen items and then sent them to his boss. And John's boss felt he had no choice but to fire him. Are you kidding me? Like, Yeah, that is such a low blow. Just, I, I just don't even understand. Like, Sex really keeps you in this kind of relationship? Like, Can't be that who good. Who is this what woman? Like, what the? What kind of like magical shit she got going on that she's able to keep these guys just entranced in this fucking abusive relationship it's crazy Mm -hmm. john had actually worked at this job for 17 years wow and she got him fired from it and at this point he's in his 40s and unemployed so it's obviously hard to start over at that point that's devastating super devastating and his friends and family thought there was no way he'd go back with her after this but for some reason he did Catherine told her daughter natasha that if john took her back this time It was going to be until death do us apart. John's friends pleaded with him to stay away from her, but after three months, they were back together again. And as you can probably imagine, his friends and family were just fed up. They're like, what the hell are you doing, man? And they wanted nothing to do with Catherine, and they were losing all sympathy for John. He had to find a new pub to hang out at because they refused to be around Catherine at this point, and rightfully so. Toward the end of 1999, things started to escalate. She asked her nephew to steal John's car, burn it, and then throw battery acid in John's face. And her nephew's like, what the hell are you talking about? Yeah, I'm not going to fucking do that. Colleen warned John to leave Catherine before he got really hurt. And he knew how dangerous she was. Now that her younger kids were in school, Catherine had more time to kill during the day. She hung out in her living room watching depraved horror movies. They excited her like she was watching pornography. This was her favorite room, and she decorated it herself. The way she decorated it was the most creepy way possible. Filled with dead, taxidermied animals, animal heads, skulls, skins, horns, 
and all kinds of weapons. She had old animal traps, knives, and machetes. She hung up farming tools like rakes and pitchforks from not only on the walls, but from the ceiling. So much so that literally in this room, there was no space left uncovered. What a weird fucking room that is. Yeah. I mean, I understand a lot of people do this. Hunters put, you know, taxidermy animal heads on the wall. Like, uh-huh. That's all normal, but mm-hmm. but not every square inch of, of right. the wall and ceiling to where you've got, you know, farming tools hanging from the ceiling. Like That's, that's kind of She weird. definitely took it to an extreme, like a whole new extreme. Right. And it became very clear that she was obsessed with death. I mean, all these things, that's what it represents. And, and she liked to be surrounded by all these creepy things. She also liked to bring people into that room and watch as they looked on in horror. One time after a big fight and a visit from the police, John insisted that Catherine must leave the house, but she refused. And the police officer told him that he needed a court order in order to make her leave, which stunned him because it was his fucking house and she didn't even live there. She just came in there and like took it over. Soon after this, in the middle of the night, John woke up to find Catherine standing over him, watching him sleep. Oh, hell no. And he realized his hands were behind his back. Obviously terrified, probably thinking, this is where I die. You know, he thought she had a knife and was about to just plunge it into his chest. Luckily, he was able to jump out of bed and saw in the mirror that she wasn't holding anything. But this still scared him so much that he ran out of the house to the neighbor's house where one of his friends answered the door and he told him what had just happened. And he said that if his car is still in the driveway in the morning, that means Catherine had finally killed him. (sighs) And she probably did all this on purpose. You know, she just knew that this would scare the crap out of him and make him, you know, sleep with one eye open that at any point she could just fucking kill him. Cause she already went through the lengths to tie up his hands. So why didn't she tie up his legs? So clearly that supports your point that she just wanted to instill fear. Yeah. It's just a fear tactic she's mm-hmm. using. That next Monday, John went to work and told his coworkers that Catherine had stabbed him. He told his boss he had to go to the courthouse to see what could be done to get her to leave his house. But when he went to the courthouse, he was told that he'd have to wait three weeks in order to actually go to court. And he assumed he'd be dead by then. When he went back to work, his coworkers begged him not to go home that night. But he said that if he didn't, Catherine would go after his kids and he'd rather it be him. That same day, Catherine went shopping for lingerie and then went to Natasha's house to make a video with her kids. In the video, she hugs and kisses them and talks about all the things that she owns and that her kids are entitled to, basically making a makeshift video will. She would tell them that this is mine, so never let anyone take it from you. On February 29th, John told his coworkers that if he didn't show up for work, Catherine had killed him. When John got home, the house was empty. Catherine wasn't there. She had sent the kids to a sleepover. So he decided to hang out at a neighbor's house that evening and then went home to bed. But then Catherine decided to show up around 10.30 p.m. when John was already asleep. After getting home, she took a shower and then put on her black lingerie she bought earlier. She then climbed into bed and started watching Star Trek which obviously woke John up, and they proceeded to have sex. He then went to the bathroom and then back to bed where he dozed off lying on his back. Shortly after this, Catherine reached under the bed, pulled out a knife, and then started stabbing John in the back over and over again. John got up and tried to turn on the light. He then proceeded to try to run down the hallway, but Catherine chased after him, 
stabbing his back and neck the entire way. John was able to make it to the front door, but as soon as he opened it, she pulled him back inside. She then proceeded to stab John 37 times, cutting up most of his internal organs. Even if he had been rushed to the hospital that very moment, within minutes, he would have been dead by the time he got there. Because after this, he slumped to the floor, where he proceeded to bleed to death. And once he was dead, this is when the work began for Catherine. She then took John's body, and she skinned all of it in one piece, using skills that she learned from the slaughterhouse. She pulled off his skin from head to toe, including his genitals. She then hung the skin on a meat hook between the dining room and kitchen. After that, she decapitated him and then carried his head to the kitchen and put it inside a large pot. Catherine then started cooking. She cooked potato, pumpkin, beetroot, zucchini, cabbage, yellow squash, and gravy. She then sliced off a piece of John's butt and cooked that as well. Then she served it all up on some dinner plates tossed a slice of the cooked flesh into the yard, and then put notes under the plates for two of his children. She kept his head in the pot of water cooking with the vegetables. She then positioned John's body in a very demeaning way, with his legs crossed and his left arm over a soda bottle. Catherine then proceeded to take a shower, got dressed, and then drove 15 minutes to an ATM, where she took $1,000 out of John's account in two withdrawals of $500, at 2.32 a.m. and 2.34 a.m. And this wasn't discovered until months later when the solicitor was going through John's estate. She then drove her van to her house and parked it in the back to hide it. From there, she walked back to John's house. She had a cigarette, made something to eat, and went to bed. She had left a note on a photograph of John. It was covered in blood and small bits of his flesh. And it said, Time got you back, Jonathan, for raping my daughter. You too, Beck. For Ross, for little John, now play with little John's dick, John Pricey. The accusations in the note were found to be groundless. Around 6 a.m. the next morning, a neighbor noticed John's car was still in the driveway, which they knew he should have been gone at work by then. And when he didn't show up for work that day or call, his boss sent someone to check on him. The neighbor and a co-worker knocked on his door and looked in the bedroom window. And that's when they found blood on the front door, and they decided to call the police. Officer Matthews and Officer Furlonger arrived at 8.10 a.m. The door was locked. One of them looked through one of the windows into a dark room, and all they could see was a curtain hanging from a doorway. They then walked around back, and that's when they found pieces of meat on the ground, which were obviously pieces of John. At that point, they then broke through the back door, and the first officer saw the curtain. The second saw it too, and it was blocking the entrance to the hallway and looked like someone had hung up an old blanket. When he walked around it and used his left hand to push it aside, he felt something cold and looked at his arm. It was covered in blood. He assumed he had hurt himself breaking into the house, but then he realized what it was. It was a pelt of human skin hanging from a meat hook. They then proceeded to step into the living room where they saw a skinless torso on the ground with no head. At this point, can you imagine being the police officers walking into a scene like this? I mean, that's some yeah, scary shit. Definitely not like they see that every day. No, so. no, it's not every day you see something like that. That's for sure. 
At that point, the officer drew his gun, realizing that this was a murder scene and that the murderer might still be in the house. There was blood absolutely everywhere. So they walked slowly and carefully, following a trail into the kitchen. That's where they found a pot on the stove. And trying to cope with the horror, one officer said, I'll give you one guess where the head is. After that, they didn't touch anything else. Later on, it was determined that the pot was still hot, approximately 104 to 122 degrees Fahrenheit when the officers arrived. As they walked down the hallway, one officer kept telling the other that it's okay, they just got to keep moving, keep going. And that's when they heard snoring from one of the bedrooms. Someone in the house was alive. And that's when they found Catherine lying on the bed. She was unresponsive with pill bottles all around her. And so they got her out of the bed, carried her out, and put her in an ambulance. When Catherine came to, she claimed that she had tried to overdose with the pills. But later on, a very normal and safe dose of this medication was found in her system. So it was just a cover. A friend of John's daughter lived in the neighborhood and saw Catherine come out. And Catherine had a huge, creepy old smile on her face. The woman's brother who was standing next to her was so shocked that he dropped to his knees. Catherine had told her brother three weeks before that she planned to kill John, and she knew how to get away with it. She planned to do it in such a crazy way that no one would believe she was sane. At this point in time, this was one of the worst crime scenes in criminal history in Australia. And Catherine was banking on an insanity defense, hoping to get her off the hook. Everything she had done to John was to inflict as much shame on him and pain on his loved ones as possible. It didn't take long for word of this horrific crime to spread throughout the town. And when Catherine's former sister-in-law, Sandy, heard, she told her husband that it had to be Catherine. He brushed it off initially, but sure enough, within a few hours, it was reported that Catherine Knight was the murderer. David Collette called his sister, Sandy, and she asked him how he felt. He said he couldn't believe it wasn't him. The police officers on the scene were also traumatized by what they saw. After this, they all needed counseling and suffered from PTSD. And one of them wouldn't eat meat for three months. Another took several months just to go back to work at all. And some of them still suffer from the PTSD from this event to this day. Obviously, forensic investigators were sent to the house to carefully collect the evidence and piece together the details of John's last night alive. And even these investigators are just as traumatized as the police officers who were first on the scene. I mean, this crime scene must have just been straight out, I mean, straight out of a horror movie. I mean, this is gruesome, gruesome stuff. The police had the horrible job of telling John's family what had happened to him. His youngest daughter ended up reading the details of his father's death in a newspaper. After this, she lay on the floor for hours, barely able to move, and she felt extremely sick. I mean, can you imagine how devastating his family must have been learning how he had been brutally murdered and mutilated in a way that they could never imagine as well right i mean it's i mean they probably all thought that she there's a chance he might kill her but to literally you know cut him up like an animal and Mm -hmm. and i mean it, it was all about shame she wanted him to pay for you know all the things that she felt like he did to her in the worst way possible in her mind exactly John's family and friends just wanted to know why Catherine had killed him. They would never know for sure, but it seemed that if she couldn't have John, she wanted to make sure no one could. It was her ultimate revenge. When they entered the house, they were met with the strong smell of a stew, the vegetables and flesh that Catherine had cooked on the stove. 
They also saw the skin from his body and genitals hanging from the meat hook. There was blood on a light switch in the bedroom, which showed where he had tried to turn on the light. Blood on the wall showed where he had coughed. Toward the living room, there were blood stains showing where he had leaned against the walls, slumping lower and lower, trying to get out the door. To where he then slid to the floor to his final resting place and died. There was also stains on the floor above the body where the head had been. And this is where she removed the head from his torso. A trail of dripping blood led to the kitchen as she carried it. The trail then stopped at the stove and the lid to the pot had yet to be opened. But inside was John's head, just stewing. The investigators collected anything in the kitchen that had blood on it or that might have been used. Two plates of food sat in the kitchen. She had cut the buttocks into five steaks and cooked them in the oven. There were two on each plate and one had been thrown outside, likely for the dog, which was still in the yard. Catherine had also left messages for two of John's kids, and there were notes for them, and their faces were scratched out of the picture. The judge never released the content of the notes to protect the kids from what Catherine wrote, and detectives had to wait to interview her because Catherine had been taken to the hospital, supposedly recovering from her alleged suicide attempt. Five days after the murder, Detective Sergeant Bob Wells interviewed her for the first time, and Catherine claimed she couldn't remember anything at all. She had no memory of the night. How convenient. But she said she remembered stabbing him months earlier. She said it was an accident, though, and that he had been standing closer than she realized when she turned with a knife in her hand. Sure. Catherine eventually accepted that she murdered John Pricey, even though she couldn't remember, and she refused to say why. She tried to claim that she was a victim of domestic violence and must have been driven to murder John. At first, she tried to just plead guilty to manslaughter, but this was rejected. And on March 2nd, 2001, she pleaded not guilty. And once it was discovered that Catherine withdrew money from John's bank account and hit her car, her insanity defense started to fall apart. Her brother even made a statement against her, telling the court that she had told him that she planned to kill John three weeks before. Her trial was postponed that July but it finally started on October 15, 2001. The judge on her case gave the 60 jury prospects the option to opt out of the case because the evidence was so graphic and disturbing. And five jury prospects did indeed leave. And once the witness list was read, several more left. Three days later, she finally pleaded guilty, but she still refused to admit she did it or say why. And the jury was dismissed. She was then given a psychiatric assessment to ensure she was fit to plea. And her defense team continued to push that she suffered from amnesia and disassociation. Three psychiatrists spent hours questioning Catherine in jail, and they all agreed that she could have amnesia and disassociation, but said she was sane and able to enter a plea. Her diagnosis of borderline personality disorder was also reconfirmed along with serious rage issues. And as a result of all this, Catherine Knight was the first woman in Australian history to be jailed for the rest of her natural life. Her papers were marked never to be released Good by the judge. He said her crime was in the worst possible category. It was deprived, violent, and premeditated. It wasn't a crime of passion or manslaughter. She knew what she was doing. In fact, she planned it. She murdered John in cold blood and defiled his body in the most gruesome way imaginable. Catherine Knight is now 65 years old and serving out her sentence at Silverwater Woman's Correctional Center in New South Wales. 
After the sentencing hearing, her lawyers requested that she be excused so she didn't have to hear the facts of the case listed, but this was refused. She listened as the skinning and decapitation of John Pricey was described in detail. She was hysterical throughout this, and the only way to calm her down was to sedate her. In June of 2006, she appealed the life sentence, claiming it was too severe of a punishment for the crime. Really? Come on. I don't think so. But her appeal was denied, and the judge wrote, this was an appalling crime, almost beyond contemplation in a civilized society. Apparently, Catherine Knight is a well-behaved prisoner, and rarely makes trouble for the guards. She does, however, sometimes try to intimidate her cellmates by talking about what she did to John. Over the years, she's had a few visitors come and see her. Once when her daughter visited, she told her that she could have her killed from inside the jail. Her twin sister, Joy, has visited a few times as well. And Catherine told her she didn't want visitors and that she was happy where she was because she felt safe now. And as you can probably imagine, all of her previous partners, the Davids and the Johns that are still alive, have all suffered from long-term psychological trauma and are obviously victims of domestic violence. I mean, this was a very, very bad situation that they were all exposed to. And it's just crazy to me that Catherine's like now trying to be like, oh, you know, I didn't know what's going on. I'm safe in here now. I was scared, you know, and all Mm -hmm. this and that trying to make herself, you know, and maybe there was some abuse towards her at some points in time, but it's no excuse for, you know, what she did, bringing it right back against Mm -hmm. them and 10 times worse. Right. And apparently Catherine doesn't want to be interviewed by the media and according to her lawyer because she doesn't want to sully John Pricey's name, which I'm like, uh, yeah, whatever. It's just, you know, trying to make yourself look better than, than you are. So at the end of this, she is right where she needs to be in prison for the rest of her natural life. She will never be getting out. She will die right there in that correctional center. Honestly, I feel like this could even be a death penalty case and you know in any other country or definitely here in the, the United US, States it'd be considered like in some for, states for this crime I mean it's just beyond I know I, don't it's, know I can't even put words to how fucked up this thing this whole case is yeah it's like, just crazy I mean yeah I think sometimes people think oh like you know women aren't capable of, of that kind of violence but it just shows that like oh yeah. all human beings are capable yeah. of doesn't matter what gender the most heinous yeah. crimes possible i mean you know if you're if your mind goes to that place and you lose control over yourself mm-hmm. i mean anybody can do anything anybody's capable yeah of the most heinous thing so well i think Catherine for sure is like the definition of a psychopath yeah you know yeah i mean clearly she's got mental disorders and stuff but i think yeah i think she's just psychologically i think it's beyond just you know the environment she grew up in obviously she grew up with all that abuse i think it comes down to she's just a different breed you know yeah. there's just a yeah. different something else going on with her that nobody can really explain but i mean it's crazy you don't often hear of of stories like this where women do you know unspeakable acts like right. this but now with Catherine knight definitely she's like the real life hannibal lecter man not only did she murder you know her man she then proceeded to serve him up as mm-hmm. food so i wonder if she actually like can cons- actually ate any of the meat that she cooked or if she just did it because it's shocking you know it's shocking Could be like it. a prop or yeah something. i kind of wonder why she actually decided to like yeah. cook up his cook him up right. i mean that's very i think it all came back to she just fear and anger mm-hmm. is how she she was like just desecrate him i mean it's it's a wild story it is it's really crazy so 
you'll have to let us know what you guys think of it. I mean, is there any other women out there we should cover? I'm definitely looking for some more evil women to, uh, to cover at some point. So let us know if you know of any, but that is where we will wrap up today's episode. Hopefully you guys enjoyed this episode as disturbing as it was of the lights out podcast. Make sure you check out our sponsors, but until next time lights out everybody. Snow falls on an old apartment. Inside, the holiday season is in swing. On the first floor, Cokes are poured and stories shared among friends. Three flights up, one generation passes down the family recipe to the next. Inside every home, there's magic. Coca-Cola. Real magic. Enjoy the real magic of the season with close friends, family, and refreshing Coca-Cola paired with all your holiday meals. 